We're going to have a graphic in just a moment. Um, kids can go back with Pastors Justin and Kristen. And Pastor Bella. And Pastor Bella. <laughs> All right. Okay. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And today, 1 John chapter 3 is like the big pinnacle moment of the book. At least in my eyes. Maybe other theologians would say, you know, some other verse or something or a collection of verses. But for me, this is the verse... This is the reason why John was writing this book. I mean, he was, he was working up to this point and it ends up being the pinnacle. If, if you're reading a book like the book of Romans, chapter eight is like that, is like that, that pinnacle. When he says there's, uh, in verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He spent seven chapters building up to that moment. John has spent a couple of chapters, a couple of, uh, a few verses building up to this moment today. But before we get there, verse one, chapter three, Put up that, is it up there? There we go. Can you guys all see that? So these are cupcakes and they look like Cookie Monster and they're decorated with blue frosting. He's got a cookie in his mouth and this is something that you would see on Pinterest, right? If you guys use Pinterest, Pinterest is a place where you can go. It's a form of social media where you can find ideas and then you pin them to your virtual pin board and then you never do them. So these are Cookie Monster cupcakes and maybe you're thinking, those would be really cute for my toddler's birthday or, you know, somebody else who loves Sesame Street or has a, or just loves cookies in general. And it's a combination cookie cupcake. I mean, who wouldn't love that? So you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to make those. So go to the next slide. That's sometimes how it turns out, right? Now look at this. Go, go back. That's the prototype. That's what it's supposed to look like. Now go. And that's how our version always comes out, isn't it? We got, what happened? You see the frosting's all runny. It looks like somebody's melting Cookie Monster, not making anything edible. And then you got the nailed it here at the bottom. And that's what we call a Pinterest fail. And thank you, Dan, for that uh, multimedia extravaganza. Um, we often, you can turn the light back on too. Um, I, I once... Uh, you guys know that recently we had uh, weight loss surgery and so we've been uh, looking at new ways to eat and things like that. And I found this recipe on Pinterest for protein pancakes. Who loves pancakes? I love pancakes. I can only eat like 16 or 17 of them. So I have to find a better recipe and I found two ingredient protein pancakes. And I thought, okay, really easy from scratch. I control all the ingredients. I'll use organic bananas or whatever it calls for. Called for bananas. It called for bananas and eggs. Two ingredients. One banana, two eggs, or vice versa. Two bananas, one egg. I thought, I'm going to make these. So I go into the kitchen. I mash it all up, get it all together, get my griddle nice and hot. I got a cast iron skillet. Love that thing. Get that nice and hot. Throw it in there. Horrible. Horrible. It was like metal mush. It was just gross and like Imagine an omelet with bananas in it. Like that's what it tasted like. And so that was my Pinterest fail. Now, maybe you've done the same thing. You've tried to bake a cake, you've tried some project, and when you get to the end of it, you're like, this looks nothing like the original. This looks nothing like what I was aiming for. This is completely almost unrecognizable compared, I'm almost embarrassed of this thing. I share that with you today because false theologies and false doctrines are an epic human fail. They are 
the proverbial cookie monster fiasco that we just saw, but in our, in our lives daily. I want you to see that our humanistic personal efforts to get to God, to find God, to climb towards him are an epic fail compared to what he has already done to draw close to us. So often we're busy trying to climb a wall that God has already broken down to come to us. And we, we feel justified. We feel as though we're doing something tangible. I'm making my way towards God, just completely oblivious to the fact that what we're doing is an epic fail. Now, turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself and is pure. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is good, and, and it's, our, it's our effort, it's our, it's our goal, Lord, to not take or to add, but to, to simply just to hear it to let it be proclaimed and let the Holy Spirit do all of the work to change us. Today, Lord, may you be glorified through your word, which, is, which was created, which exists to glorify you in the first place. We love you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've talked a lot and I've mentioned a lot uh, about something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is probably not in your normal everyday vocabulary. You may be familiar with agnosticism or being agnostic, which is um, just to give you a very general definition means uh, never knowing. Um, Gnosticism is the opposite, knowing everything. And Gnosticism for the first century church that John is addressing had infiltrated God's church. It had infiltrated and taken over the gospel message that was supposed to go out and liberate people. It was supposed to be a message of light in a dark place. The message that, that God sent his son uh, on a missionary trip to earth to die in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven so that we could be with God and he could be our God. That Jesus would indeed be that one that bridged the gap between us and the Father, that the enmity, the war between us, the division between us and God would be erased by what Jesus did. But as humans often do, we take that simple message and we convolute it. We change it. It, it. it loses some of its luster. And here's what I mean by that. We just, we get used to it and we start looking for something a lot more exciting. Man by the name of, uh, of E.W. Kenyon, he loved the gospel message, but it got tiresome for him. So we started adding in uh, things from metaphysics and, and, and started adding in uh, pseudo-spirituality. And today, a hundred years later, we end up with what's known as the, the prosperity gospel. It's not the gospel at all. It's just a manipulation of the gospel. Gnostics did the same thing. You know, there's, there's, um, there's the gospel message, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, being saved by faith alone. But that's just not, it's not attracting the people. Because the crux of that message is what? You're a sinner needing to be saved. And sometimes people don't like to hear that message. They wanna hear that their efforts are good enough, that God loves them simply as they are, that they don't need to change, that nothing needs to be done to, to, to correct anything you've ever done. Maybe you've heard somebody before in your life say, well, I don't feel like I've ever sinned. 
If you're a Christian, you're like, man, I've sinned 12 times today and it's not even 10 o'clock yet. You realize quickly that we need a savior, but when the world doesn't see themselves as needing a savior, they become self-reliant and don't see the message as as attractive or as needful. And so what happens is, Maybe even well-meaning Christians, but they're really not well-meaning. What they do is they try to dress up the gospel. And so they try to make it mysterious or mystical. And that's what the Gnostics did. And then, and then when they were called on their heresy, their response would be, well, this is secret knowledge. So you don't understand it because it hasn't been revealed to you yet. And so the problem isn't with our teaching. The problem lies with you. You, you just aren't at a place where you can understand the level of awesomeness that we, we've achieved. But maybe, just maybe, by going through this sort of uh, intellectual ladder, this secret mystical knowledge ladder, you'll climb the rungs and get closer and closer to God as more and more knowledge is revealed to you. This is all that built up to justify sin in their life. They taught that the physical body could sin because the physical body would one day be changed or destroyed, which has biblical roots, but the Bible speaks to us and tells us and commands us to abstain from sin because of its hold on us and and the hooks it puts in us and how we need to be delivered from it, that we don't have liberty to sin just because one day the physical body will be changed. And so the Gnostics wanting to continue in their sin just developed a way to keep sinning and have it approved by God. So today, you know, you might have an argument against uh, the Bible. You might say, well, you know, times have changed or, you know, this is, this is different now or, or have more understanding. We need to be very clear. You may not like what the word of God says, but it is what the word of God says. If you wanna have a different ideology, if you want to, to have a different way of living your life, that's fine. It's America still, and you can still choose to live however you'd like. But don't change the gospel or attempt to change the gospel to suit your needs. Come to the gospel and let the gospel change you. The Gnostics came in and changed the gospel to meet their needs so they, continue, they could continue in sin, specifically sexual sin, and then masked it in this, you know, they sh- it was this charade of mysticism. And today, Gnosticism exists. We just don't necessarily call it by that name anymore, but it's still Gnosticism. And, and, and folks who, who wander into heretical, non, uh, the- or, or, or anti-theological ideas, anti-Christian ideas, they often dress it up in questions. Well, I'm just questioning. That's fine. You can question all day long, but Gnosticism satisfied in the question. There's no need for an answer. I just want to ask this really, you know, a, a philosophical question that leaves you befuddled and impressed with my knowledge. I don't really need the answer. And so Gnostics were satisfied in just asking the questions, but never truly getting to the answer. Now, Gnosticism has two very inherent problems other than just being, you know, heresy. It leads to two paths. There's only two paths you can go to here. Well, three. First is uh, spiritual superiority, classism, where you see yourself as better as other people because, well, you just know. And, and those poor people, they just, if, they could just, if they could just see things the way that I do, but, you know, God loves me more, so he gave me more wisdom and knowledge, and so, you know, I'll just pity them for a while. It makes you look down upon people who you see as less than you, 
less than you and God loves them less and that sort of thing. That's number one. But most often it leads to two different directions, burning up or burning out. Burning up means you're, you're on the other side. Well, I just need more knowledge. So you spend yourself, your health, your physicality, your mind, your intellect, your finances, everything, your marriage, you spend everything trying to get closer to God through this ladder, through this wisdom, through this knowledge, by, by trying to pull it down for yourself, by forcing God's hand or challenging him. It leads to burn up. You just waste yourself. You don't have, that was never the intention for you to do that. You don't have the, the physical capacity to, to do the fuel to get that kind of job done. So you burn up. Or you burn out because eventually you realize I'm beating my head against the same brick wall over and over and I'm not getting any further and I'm not getting anywhere near those people are and so you just give up. You burn out. I'm done with God, I'm done with Jesus, I'm done with the church, I'm done with prayer because you've wasted all of your energy trying to attain something that was never yours to attain. I'm all for giving it your all when, there's, uh, when something's attainable. And I don't mean like sometimes you sacrifice to try to get something. What I mean is like sometimes there are things I just know aren't going to happen. So for instance, I know I'm gonna end up being late for something. Why speed and get a ticket? Doesn't make, he says, why put other people's lives at risk, my own life at risk? You can't be late twice. I'm already gonna be late. Just why try to push the impossible? Go in, make apologies, ask for forgiveness, and then try not to do that again in the future. You know, if it's attainable, well, I got, I'm 10 minutes away and I got 15 minutes to get there. Okay, this is attainable. We can do this. Let's, let's throw some extra effort in there. Let's, Look over our, no cops, in, okay, go a little, you know, a little bit faster, just a few miles, 67, 68, you know, in a school zone. Not, not too much. That was a joke. I would never drive that fast in a school zone. I barely drive that fast on the thruway. Come on. My wife can, where, who, there you are. <laughs> From who? Oh, really? You, get, you guys, uh-huh, a lot uh, similar. Um, my point is this. Um, when it's attainable, when you can do it, then it's worth it. But when it, you can't, and then you try to waste yourself and you try, to, you try to get, what you end up doing is just burning out. Why did I even bother? Why did I do this? And as a pastor and as a church, when we see people who have gone down that road, we, we just cringe inside. We know if they've been in one of those two modes, burn up or burn out, it, it's very hard to get them back from that place. It's very hard to, to extend to them the grace of God because for them, they've already seen it. They've seen a variation of it, a very poor variation of it, but they think that they've seen it. And so Gnosticism leads, it ultimately leads to this. False doctrine and theology will ultimately lead to this. It won't, it won't be different for you. It will lead to the same conclusion that it has for every person that has ever tried it. And so, Gnosticism and these false gospels that we see floating around here today are an epic fail. They are humanity's way of trying to get back to God. But here's why this is the kind of the crux or the, or the, the pinnacle of this, this letter that John wrote. Because he's dealing with Gnostics, those who are in the known, have secret knowledge, and what does he say? 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. He just flat out tells us you can know. It's the exact opposite of what the teachers are telling you right now, he says to them. They're telling you maybe you can know. Maybe you'll reach a level. Maybe you'll be good enough. Maybe God will love you enough. And John says, no, see, behold, the King James says. Today, church, I invite you, see the love that God has lavished upon you that you might be called today the children of God. You are not inherently a child of God. There are people, we're all children of God. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that we're born spirit, we're born, we're born spiritually dead. We're like orphans. And that God comes in, brings us back to life, makes us alive in him and adopts us into his family. Of all of the titles that God has, warrior, king of kings, Lord of lords, he is also our eternal father. Paul speaks about how we now cry out, Abba, Father. If you've ever heard a child begin to say those first few words, they start to say da-da, but before that, it's coming out Abba, Abba. It's, it's the same word that a lot of Middle Eastern cultures and people would use for the name of father, Abba. It's that primal first word that comes out. And Paul says in the book of Romans, I believe, that we too now, we cry out in that same way as born again children of God to our Abba, our Father. He's now our dad. We are now part of his family. We now belong to him. And there is no, there are no hoops to jump through. There are no, there are no, uh, 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 there's no quota to meet. There's no list of things that you must accomplish first before you are known by God and that you can know him. John says, see what kind of love the father has. This word love here is that word agape. You've probably heard that word before. It's a pretty famous word within the church. If you haven't, it's a very simple word in the Greek, agape. It means love feast, which is a little too 60s for me. Little, little too hippie, but that's okay. That, that's my problem, not the word, not the not Jesus. What it, what it conjures up pictures of is a buffet. And I've spoken to you at length about my love for buffets. I don't have them anymore because they're a waste of money, but a good buffet with hot food that's prepared well is worth its weight in gold. You go and you just, food for as far as the eye can see, and there's so much food you could never consume it all. And I've tried, and you can't. And, and, and a group of people coming to the buffet trying to consume that food never happened. Why? Because they just keep putting more food out there because it's a buffet. And that same imagery is what we use when it comes to this word agape. It's this love that we come to and we could never consume it all because God is continuously pouring it out upon us. Picture a bucket of water poured over your head continuously and the bucket just never emptying. The love that God has for you, simply, that's the best way I can describe it, the only way I can describe it. It is a pale comparison of what actually is transpiring, but human words limit how I can describe it. But if you can picture this love that God has for you, 
Not just in a moment, not just yesterday, not for some future version of yourself, but you right now in the pews, sitting here, listening, reading, hearing and worshiping, God loves you with that love. See, behold the love that he has for you. This agape love. This love that, honestly, no human version of love even compares to. It's a love that's not dependent upon you. Some of our relationships are built on what the other person does for us, right? And we won't, we won't say that, but when they aren't doing something for us or what we feel is, is what we're worthy of, we, we start to shrink back, don't we? If that person isn't investing in the relationship the way that you are, eventually you burn out on that relationship because it's very one-sided. And sometimes that other person doesn't even know. And sometimes that other person is selfish and they're just looking at you in the same way. And you're not investing, so they're shrinking back. And now it's like this standoff between the two of you and who's gonna break first. And not all of our human relationships are like that. And the Bible speaks to us having relationships that are more about us serving others than us being served. That we are served in the serving, that if we're worried about what we're going to get, we should worry about what we're going to do for others first. But it's not like that. God's love for us is not dependent upon our performance or what we bring to the table or whether we are even investing in our relationship. Your heart beats, your lungs breathe today. It's a gift and a symbol of the fact that God wants you to be alive and that in and of itself is a gift. The Bible speaks about how that could end at any moment if God should choose. I spoke Wednesday about this news article that I'd read and my wife shared with me about a man who went to 7-Eleven and got nachos and died of botulism. I don't, nachos are an absolute good. I don't understand how this happened. I grew up on nachos. I grew up on 7-Eleven nachos, explained some of the problems that I have, but I grew up, and for you to tell me that, that on, on your tombstone that it could possibly say, here lies Joe Schmo." too much nachos. That's the best I can do on the amount of sleep I had last night. Then you died from nachos? Like, what a horrible way to go. We, who wakes up and says, you know what, I'm gonna have nachos today and I might die? Nobody. Because we do not know the day or the hour when we will be called home to be with the Lord. You look at a man like Keith Richards, he should have been dead 20 years ago. The man is filled with enough chemicals to preserve him through a nuclear apocalypse. The man, by, I read an article once, they looked at all the aspects of his life. He truly, by the, 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 the algorithm that they had, he should have died a long time ago. But here he is. We do not know the day or the hour or the time when, when we will be called home to be with the Lord. The Bible speaks of us being prepared, being ready for that day. And, and sometimes we, we deal with life as though it'll never end. But going back, going back to God's love, it's poured out to us in this agape love feast, buffet of love that's not dependent upon what we do. And the word goes to great lengths to show us that. And the, and the best explanation is the fact that Jesus is loved so much by the Father, yet the Father gives the Son to us. 
It's that same sort of uh, imagery we're given with Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham goes up on Mount Moriah to make sacrifice to the Lord and there's no sacrifice. And so Abraham's going to offer up Isaac. And the Bible says that Isaac is the son whom Abraham loved. At the last moment, God saves Isaac from that sacrifice. We kind of gloss over that story sometimes. It's going to be worth a, a Bible study or a sermon series at some point. But God provides a ram in the thicket and that becomes a shadow or a precursor for what God the Father will do. But in his version, the son will actually be sacrificed for the sins of the world. When Jesus is baptized by his cousin in the desert, John the Baptist, says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove and from the heavens everyone heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible goes to great lengths to explain to us that God the Father loves God the Son and he gave that son so that he could gain us. John says, see, behold, the, the, the type of love that God has for you. It's not, it's not, it's not only parental love. That can be a, a, a glimpse of it. It's not like romantic love, although that could be a shadow of it. It transcends, it's bigger than all, it encapsulates all of those and it's so much more. But here's the thing about the love of God. It doesn't just clean you up. And sometimes we use the love of God as, as just a way to clean us up. The love of God through his grace will indeed, it will, it will cleanse us of every stain. It will forgive us of every sin. But how horrible would it be if God came in, cleaned us up, and then left? Just left us there, clean and shiny and, and, and brand new, sinless. What's gonna happen? we're gonna be like that pig that got washed off. We're gonna go back to the mud. You ever given your dog a bath and then he just runs to the mud? You're like, oh, I just cleaned you up. Like it just got, I bought special shampoo and just, now you're all dirty again. My dogs do that. I mean, that's what we would do if God came in, cleaned us up and then left us. How do I know this? Well, we wouldn't have sinned the first time if we had the capacity not to sin again. So the love of God doesn't just come in momentarily, it comes in and dwells with us. It stays with us. Because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, every bit God, he is with us every moment of every day as another extension of God's love and proof of love for us. John goes on to say, see what kind of love the Father has given us to be called a child of God. Remember as a kid, my, my, my real name's Antonio. Uh, um, my father's Hispanic and that was his name and the alternative was Telly. I've shared that with you before so I'm very thankful uh, for Antonio. Um, but I've always gone by Tony. Um, and when I started going to school, starting in kindergarten, when they do the roll call, first day of school, Antonio, I'd be like, Tony. And by the time I got to high school, it got like, it's like tedious. Like I, I had to keep, especially high school, you got six different teachers and you're like, Tony. So by the end of the day, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna go by Antonio now. Just whatever. Identity crisis, I don't know what it was. I was just, I'm gonna go by Antonio. And so these teachers, some of those teachers then only knew me by that name. They didn't know me as, as Tony. I never corrected them. I never said anything. It 
it's strange how important what we're called is that important to us, right? Like, can you remember the first time your child called you by your name rather than mom or dad? What? No, like I earned that title. Do not call me Tony, I'm mom or I'm dad. You know, maybe your, your parents were the same way if you ever got cocky and tried to call them by their first name. Like, what? You know, you ever, you ever see a teacher out in the community, you know, and, and you call them by Mrs. Whatever and, and then they introduce themselves to your parents by their first name. You're like, well, you have a first name? That's just, that's bizarre. And what are you doing outside of school? Like, you should be there all the time, Mrs. Whatever. Names are so important. How many of you labored over the name for your child? No, that one's not good enough. No, that one's not good. And then you find a name. Well, how am I going to spell it? And I want to put an apostrophe in there and I just, I'm going to make it unique. It's going to be their name. We, we labored over the names of our children, uh, except for Ellie. Ellie, her name was given to us in a prayer. Or it was given to us in, a, in, a, in, a, in an answer to prayer. But for Isaac, you know, uh, Isaac <clears throat> meant laughter. And we just, we just loved that name. And then um, ironically enough, she, Sarah gave birth because she was laughing so hard. <laughs> it, was, it was really, I don't know, a whole other story. But when he ended up passing, um, we said, okay, w- when we have our next child, we want it to mean something. And so Ethan Broderick, uh, it means strong brother. And it was sort of this commemoration of, of, of Isaac and how strong he was for those days. And it was a reminder to us what that meant. And it was something for Ethan to carry on as the, as the new uh, you know, firstborn male or the nextborn male in our family. Eliana means uh, God has heard my prayer. And so they meant something to us. Their, their names mean something and what we're called means something. And the Bible doesn't lose sight of that or try to shy away from it or correct us on that. As a matter of fact, it, it, it corrects that or directs that and leads that. You are called, you are named a child of God. That is your title. That is who you are now. If you have put faith in Jesus today or any other point in your life, that's who you are now. You're not the person you once were. You might have habits and proclivities that God is delivering you from and things that you should not be doing, but you are no longer that person. You are being transformed daily, moment by moment into a brand new creation. And that brand new creation includes being a child of God. Romans 8 and 38 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is is nothing, boil that down, nothing will separate you from the love of God. You are now a child of God. That is who you are. And let me give you a little side note on that verse. Something that blew me away as I was studying it. I told Sarah, I'm like, Sarah, I gotta share this with you. And usually I'm angry and she's like, okay. But this was not an angry moment. Couldn't have Paul just said, death will not separate you from the love of God? Why do you throw life in there? Neither death nor life. I mean, there's the opposites thing going on, but could it be because life will come to try to separate you from the love of God? How many of you can attest to the fact right now that something is happening in life to separate you from God? And so God reminds us, not even that can separate you. Whatever circumstance you're going through, whatever life is throwing at you, 
nothing compared to the love of God. It might be the cancer diagnosis, the getting laid off from the job. It might be divorce. It might be this, it might be that, but none of those things, nothing life can give you can separate you from God, not even you. You could run as far and as fast as you think your little legs can take you. You will not separate yourself from God any more than your child running away from you can separate themselves from you. In the Gospel of John chapter one, verse, one, uh, verse 12 rather, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, John, this was a point that, that was really driven home to John. It was something that if you heard him preach at different churches, you'd probably hear the same similar message at every church. That you are a child of God today, not because you chose to, not because uh, your parents chose to, not because you made any kind of choice, but because God decided that you would be his child. We always speak about how without choice there is no love. God had a choice and he chose to love you. Galatians 3 and 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or children of God through faith. The common denominator for children of God is that they have faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, there is no child of God. This is why we don't say that every person is a child of God. Every person is made in the image of God. The word tells us that that everyone has the right to uh, human existence, that we don't have any right to take life from other people, but we are not inherently children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse one, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Every one of these words is very important. I believe that every word of the Bible is, is, is there for a reason. There's no wasted ink, there's no wasted pages. God has said what he has said specifically for a reason and the words he chooses are as important as what he's saying. And he says that this love has been given to us. That means that there are no strings attached. You know how, you know, there's a bank in town. Sign up with a checking account and you get a free beach blanket. Well, that's cool. Sign up with us and we'll give you this or we'll give you that. And then what do they have at the bottom? The fine print. Void in Alaska and Hawaii, you know, cannot be transferred, severe tire damage. I mean, there's all kinds of different disclaimers down at the bottom that gets them out of situations and ultimately they don't have to give you the thing. And maybe it's not the bank with the beach towel. Maybe it's some, you know, free sandwich here. Maybe it's, maybe it's some other offer over there, half off if you do this strings attached. With this, there is no string. It's not as though God is saying, come to me and I will give you life. Void in Alaska and Hawaii, you know, consult your physician, you know, do not, you know, if you're a, on MAOIs, don't take it. Like it's not nothing like that. Come, this is being given to you. God takes all of the risk to get all of the reward. You take no risk other than abandoning the old life that you know doesn't work anyways. 
It's, it's the equivalent of bringing in a junker car that doesn't run and has three tires and no windshield and you coming in and saying, I'd like a new car and them saying, sure, here you go. Here's the best car we have on the lot. And you're like, what, what do I have to sign? No, nothing, just take it. But don't I have to give some money? Nope, it's all yours. And then we spend the rest of our life trying to drive the new car, dragging the old car. Well, I don't know if I could get rid of it. And you're just like, this is my life now. I have this great thing that God has given me, but I just can't get rid of this. And it's like, why don't you just kind of do that? It's been given to you. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. God did that, he says, so that we couldn't brag about it. Hey, look at how... Look at how great I am and how much God loves me because that's our tendency. That's what we would do. Gnosticism. Says, no, none of us can brag now. Today, if we ever say God loves us, we can't take pride in that. We can't say because I'm so great. We have to say God loves me because I'm like Paul, the chief of sinners, the sinner of sinners. I needed saving. I, I, I destroyed my life and the one that was given to me and I needed new life and I found it in Christ. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Jesus has been given to us. And this love fuels our endurance. You are called to endure a great many things. You are going to endure things in your life that you will never ask for. And and many of you already have, and there'll be more things in the future. If you're living your life today so that it may be pain-free, you will live in the most painful of lives because you will never be pain-free and you will be bewildered as to why there is so much pain. But the Lord has called us to the same ministry he walked and that's the ministry of suffering. We will suffer, well, we'll suffer for our sin. That's just a given. You make a wrong choice. There's suffering that comes with that. You go blow all your money at the casino, you're gonna suffer a little bit, right? You go spend the weekend drinking with your buddies and your wife told you to stay home, you're gonna suffer for that one. You know, you eat and eat and eat and you don't exercise or, or exercise portion control, you're gonna pay for that penalty, right? We know this. But that's not the suffering I'm talking about. God is gracious even in those moments. Please don't let me take away from that. But we're gonna suffer sometimes simply because life. Because God will lead us through a valley so that he might be glorified in that valley. We sang it earlier, how great is our God. The whole crux of that song, the whole point of that song is that the world would see us and not say, look how great the church is. They look at us and go, man, there must be something to that Jesus because I see a group of broken people coming together and getting a whole lot of stuff done. Loving people in spite of their brokenness, serving people in spite of the fact that they have nothing. The whole point of the fishes and the loaves story in the gospels is not that we would say, hey, that's a great way to get fishes and loaves. It's to look and say, wow, it's not about what I have, it's about what God can do. That a couple of fishes and a couple of loaves in the hand of God can feed a lot more than I could ever do. It can, what he can take what little bit I have and he can do so much more with it. But we're called to endure. The problem is you, you in and of yourself, you do not have the power to endure. Some of you are very strong people. This is not a knock against you. I'm not saying you're not strong in in one sense. What I'm saying is to endure what God has for your life, you do not have the strength to do. 
God will only give me what I can handle. No, no, he will give you all the things that you cannot handle so that you will run to him saying, Lord, I can't handle this. And I'm assuming he says, I know. Maybe that's not what he says. But the point is that you would never rely on yourself. Oh, I've got this. Oh, I can do this. But you would say, I can do this because Christ is with me. I can do this not because I'm powerful, but because he is. Read about the life of Paul and what he did. It's an amazing story. He was a Pharisee. Most likely he was involved when Jesus was being mocked and crucified. I mean, he, he knew he may have been in with uh, the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus when Jesus would do his, you know, his biblical ninjutsu on him. And they'd be like, hey, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he'd be like, whose image is on that coin? Render unto Caesar's. What is Caesar's? Render unto God. What is God's? And they're like, oh, then they plotted together to kill him. That was Paul. Paul, Paul gave out orders to people to kill the church. He sent out warrants to, to detain them and to stop them from preaching the gospel. When Stephen, the first martyr, is killed in the book of Acts, it says that he stood there clapping and approving, saying, yes, this is the will of God. And it's that same man that Jesus takes and transforms and sends out to start the first century church, to go to places and, and to, to, to proclaim the gospel in the midst of riots. Have you ever read the story of him in Ephesus? He just starts talking about Jesus and everybody goes nuts. They want to kill him. I've never knowingly preached somewhere where somebody wanted to kill me. I mean, there's been some sermons that were long and I assume that people wanted to kill me. Like if that'll get him to shut up, that'd be great. But not in this way. They wanted, he was preaching against false idols and in Ephesus they were making these, these carved images of the goddess Diana. And people were like, oh yeah, we don't have to worship Diana anymore, so we don't have to buy any of those idols anymore. And the people in town were like, look, we're losing out on money. We need Diana to be revered so we can get our money. And so they started a riot. He's ultimately crucified for the message that he delivered. Paul didn't have that power by himself. Paul didn't just do that because, God didn't just choose Paul because he was a great guy and showed great potential. It's the opposite. He was killing the church and Jesus was like, yeah, I'll use him. It's like the equivalent of choosing, the, uh, choosing a kid in a wheelchair to be on your, on your soccer team as your first pick. And that's not a dig on people with handicaps, but kids are cruel and they do stuff like that. And God says, no, I can do more with him than anybody else. And that's exactly what he did. And he will do with you in spite of your handicaps, in spite of your limitations, he will do more through you than you could ever do on your own. I want to do this, I want to do that. I guarantee you those pale in comparison as to what God will actually do in your life. It's, it's the will of Jesus that you would endure, that you would make it, that you would not be toppled by whatever circumstance you're in, that you would fall and get up and fall and get up and fall and get up all in the name of Jesus. today, this is knowledge for you. You don't have to subscribe to it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to pray a certain amount of time in a certain direction with your head covered to attain this. This is knowledge that's freely given from God to you. 
But now, what and how do you respond to this knowledge? See, that's the part Gnosticism never even approached. But ultimately, the gospel of Jesus demands a response. How are you going to respond to that? And I can make you raise your hand or we could sign this or we could... None of those things mean anything if we don't live according to these things. Don't make big promises to the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm gonna do this, that, and this, and this. Because even if you keep it up for a while, you'll fail eventually. And then you'll feel horrible and then you won't wanna do it. Just, just do this. What has the word of God told you to do? Let's start there. To love the Lord your God with everything you have. To love others as you seek to be loved. If we do those things, Jesus says you encompass all of the law and the prophets if you just stick to those two commands. If you look at every circumstance, situation, the people around you, the family you have, the church you're involved, if you start with, I love God and then I love people, it will dramatically alter your response to the world and your circumstances. Use that to fuel your prayer. Lord, I can't do this. That's an okay prayer. Lord, this is too much. That's an okay prayer. Read the Psalms. You know, David would write Psalms when he was in times of great distress. They're not just Psalms of victory and, you know, they're Psalms of, you know, Lord, where are you? How long am I going to suffer? Are my enemies always going to win? Are bad people always going to be blessed? Is this ever going to turn around? Am I ever going to not be in a cave running from a, a king that I'm supposed to, you know, take the place of? This was a form of worship. This was David worshiping the Lord by coming to him. In the same way your kids might come to you and say, Dad, I don't get it. Mom, I don't understand. Why, why do we do this or why do we do that? Or why, why can't we do just what I want to do? Or why can't we have this thing? And then you explain to them your will and you hope that they understand and then they say, okay, your will be done because your will for my life is better than my own will. Kids are great, but they eat candy all day if you let them, right? That's their will. What's your will? That they would eat healthy, they have portion control, eat more vegetables, eat what we're actually serving, like some of your parents, you know what I'm talking about there. That's your will. See, God the Father has a will for you and we have a will for us and somebody's gonna win. I would say lay down your will in the same way Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Help me to love you. Help me to love others. Help me to live for you. I pray that would be your response today. Let's stand. Let's pray together. I, I always, well, I don't always say bless you, whoever that was. Um, my belief is that your greatest prayer need today, not knowing anything that's going on in your life right now, your greatest prayer need today is answered in the person of Jesus. You don't need a thing more than you need Jesus. Now, you might need Jesus to do that thing. I get that. I need more money. I need more health. I need more strength. I need more patience, all that stuff. But all of those things are found in Jesus. Jesus is not known for giving the gifts apart from himself. He comes with, he brings the gifts to you. Today, the simple cry 
is Lord Jesus, come quickly. Last week we spoke of how we've lost sight of the fact that Jesus is returning. It's this glorious promise that for the first century church, that's how they live. Jesus, Jesus is coming back. He's, he's gone to be with the Father. We have the Holy Spirit, but there's a day coming where he will be here with us. And the Bible says even, even in the time between Jesus' ascension and the actual writing down of these words, there were already people who died in that hope. The word says they fell asleep. Not that they went into some type of soul sleep, but that they, they've rested and one day the Lord will raise them back up. And church, that's the same promise we have today. Maybe, maybe you want your life to be completely different. Maybe you wish the pol- pol- political climate of our country was different. Maybe you wish people did this or did that. Here, we're gonna start with us and with Jesus. We're gonna pray that we would repent, that we as the church would turn our faces back to God that our, that our blessing and prosperity wouldn't just simply be materialistic things, but they'd be in the abundance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Heavenly Father, we praise you today. Lord, I just praise you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill your people today, Lord. Your word tells us that you give us the desires of our heart. The heart is in and of itself just nothing it's bent towards sin but when you get in there you change it and you make it something wholly new and we begin to desire what you want so today lord if if these aren't our desires but we recognize them lord we see them we understand change our hearts lord i'm the last person to come up here and judge anybody else based on their life I, i i need this change as much if not more than anybody, Lord. We come to you today, we all need you. We are so thankful today that you have given us this knowledge that we are now children of God. It's not about what we've done, it's not about what we've said, it's not about how many dollars we've given or days we've gone to church or prayers that we've said or how fervent we were or how authentic we were. It's all about what you have done to rescue us from the enmity, the war, the despair, the distance that we used to have. Father, I pray that, I simply pray, Lord, what the word already tells us, that you've come into our lives, not in a moment. You're not waiting for us to get to a certain place. You are here now to work in us. Father, I pray be glorified today. In your name we pray, amen. Church, we love you. I love you. Thank you so much for all that you do here at the chapel.